0: So, gentlemen, oh, man, is she, is she still in a snuggly stay, phase? Uh, Sir. Have we started? That...
1: <laughs> uh, yeah, we always s- just sort of record. Lucas well. just starts recording yes. out
2: the drop. So, you know, whether or not we end up keeping this pre-pre is totally up for yeah, debate, discussion. Right. right. I, I, or I
0: use Squadcast um, I, and I can tell it's recording. It's more a matter of like, oh. I do the same thing. I, I'm like... Maybe yeah. we accidentally get into the conversation before I meant to for us mm-hmm. to. Um, yeah, but yes, she. We've is definitely done a, that before, so. She's a snuggler, but uh, yeah. mostly I think mostly because she has a little baby brother now, a little one-month-old baby, oh. and so now she wants us to treat her like a baby again. Suddenly, uh. it went. It, it went from. No. Like I'll do it myself mm-hmm. to carry me. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah. So, That's some
1: interesting timing, yeah.
0: Yeah, let me suck your finger. <laughs> I'm like, "Oh mm-hmm. my god." You know, which is like I completely relate to that. I think uh I'm going through something kind of similar myself in <laughs> in, in life right now.
1: I hear that. I just
0: yeah yeah I, I,
1: I think that's a pretty common uh feeling at the moment you know or because because during the pandemic everybody just wanted comfort 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 you know everybody in like in new york seamless and doordash and fresh direct just got their stock just exploded because everybody was just like i want my donuts i want my coffee i want my burritos i want you know what i mean everybody gained their COVID 19.
0: yeah I did, <laughs> right. I did, but I only I only gained it this year. Hmm. Um, I think it's well. We used to live in this tiny apartment on us on a hill downtown here in Santa Fe, and we were two blocks downhill from this gorgeous scenic historic park where the uh, the Army of the Americas had built their fort in 1847, and so you know that they could survey. The entire city and that was like a mud fort so it doesn't exist anymore but the footprint is still there and and we would walk up there every night for the sunset and then in november we moved into a house that's kind of down in the city on much flatter ground and so i'm not getting in my my like hill climbing my daily hill climbing and so suddenly, the effects of my sedentary lifestyle are starting to show themselves. Mm-hmm. You know,
1: mm-hmm.
0: also like sympathy, pregnancy weight. I think possibly it's, it's a thing, thing, man. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, but I mean, generally, I think you know the whole thing about regression. You know, I've always, I've always been on the tip that. You know, sometimes you move backwards in order to move forwards, you know, like uh, I was 17 and I was, I had just started driving and I had a, an old Jeep Cherokee I was using as a paleontological field vehicle. Nice. It was awesome. It was like my dream come true um, out in Wyoming and there was this road they called the the road of death that, uh, you know, was pretty tr- kind of treacherous and it went through sheep Creek and I got my Jeep stuck in the Creek uh, and had to try and kind of do this seesaw thing to get it out and ended up flooding the engine through the tailpipe. Mm. And so (laughs) like one of my favorite portraits of me is this photograph that someone took of me just like completely defeated, sitting on the hood of my car in the middle of a Creek. <laughs> like, but that's like what I wanted, you know. That's yeah. like that's that was that was like what I had seen in the like the Nova PBS documentaries about dinosaur <laughs> field work was these people getting their 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 field vehicles stuck somewhere because yeah. they were just out there roughing it. It's back you know? of honor, yeah. And yeah, and so I don't know. Lately, I've been feeling that way, kind of at at work, and uh, so yeah. It's it's. I mean, that's not really a great example of like backing out of something in order to move forward. But I do think, it. (laughs) you know, the the point is,
2: it's nonlinear, right? That's actually where I, I was going with that. And as you were talking about it, I was like, yeah, there's definitely the like, shut the door before you open it kind of thing when it's like swollen and jammed. And we, we monkey with that a lot in various manual therapies. But there's also the thing of like, you know, the forward back dichotomy at all being an interesting artifact and in some of these conversations right about like the idea of progress and solutionism and like whether we really want to get into those kinds of things like the story that you're telling sort of minds me of like well you know there's something that's unfolding right (laughs) (laughs) here whether it's forward or backward is a little hard to say but i'm you know i'm in the middle of the river or the creek right which is in this constant state of flux so like okay here i am on the hood
0: yeah you know actually i'll add something to that because i think you know we as terrestrial animals we you know we think forward and back that makes a lot of sense you know we've We got to orient ourselves it's not like we're a coral or something uh but the you know we're also sort of constrained on this two-dimensional plane and i think that limits our thinking and you know when i think about something like uh that that particular experience i ended up having to stay out there until sunset while everybody else went back into town and came back with a winch.
1: Mm. Okay.
0: And uh, one other person stayed out there with me. Uh, this, this woman, Corinne, who was some kind of, I, I don't know, like a Catholic priest, but I guess you can't, you know, like, I'm, I'm not sure what the, the rules are about female priests, but she was perhaps in some sort of, you know, progressive uh, situation. But, you know she was like i want to stay out here and just like you know become unmoored from our our workday responsibilities and and you know like decouple myself from the the schedule of things and just sit out here in the wyoming badlands and enjoy this place on its own schedule and so she and i had this profound experience where you know we didn't really s- s- talk that much or you know but we we kind of Wandered around this this butte uh, within eyesight of each other as golden hour approached and and the you know dusk came until they the head of our our field expedition came back and and you know dug me out and you know that that kind of reminds me of Charles Eisenstein, something that he wrote years and years ago about about sickness being an important opportunity, you know, that like, you're going really fast in life. All of us tend to overclock ourselves. You know, we tend to, we we tend to, I think most people in, in America in particular, and in sort of Western civilization more generally are trying to keep pace in a situation that's completely unreasonable and you know kind of antagonistic to the human organism and and to deeper ideas and and deeper understandings and you know it's it's kind of like we're just hydroplaning over the surface of our own lives <laughs> mm-hmm. and you know and then you know if you spin out and end up stuck in a ditch somewhere then that's actually you know that's usually when people have these profound breakthroughs that you know that they're not that you know that they have to reprioritize you know nobody comes back from a near-death experience and is like I'm just going to keep doing things the way I was
1: doing them (laughs) right you know that was working for me
0: right when you're just like oh this I can't do this anymore and Mm -hmm. you know I recently said something to that effect uh I've been modding this you know reasonably large group a few thousand people for future fossils podcast on facebook and uh, taryn i think you may have seen this i have uh yeah that i was just like i sorry guys i i can't do this anymore it's unreasonable to like on top of you know multiple jobs and a family to to try and also like break up fights between strangers on a daily basis Nah. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> like for free yeah yeah, 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 they pay yeah me that's to do its this. own job bro yeah mm-hmm. so you know and i think that you know that that came oh my gosh that came from you know making having having some sort of boundary collapses at mm. you know in my in other parts of my life where i realized i wasn't really holding it together as well as i thought and that you know it, i needed to you know I needed to sort of reevaluate, reprioritize. But yeah, I didn't realize we'd be having a spiritual conversation today. But this is okay.
1: <laughs> that's what that's our world, man. <laughs> you just made a, a beautiful um, example of how health works, <laughs> and like half of what we do, you know. Where I'm, I feel like half of my day is spent talking to people and explaining how. You know, they come to the door and they have this issue. Say they have like um, sciatica, or they have some skin issue, or like their digestion is all out of whack, right? And they're just like, I don't know what happened. Something. I don't know if it was something I ate, or I don't know if it was the like, um, you know, the walk that I went on today. Something today, or something recent that just happened caused this issue. And it's like, well, you know what What's your life been like up until now? And it's always you know a certain habit that's not really in line with how we're supposed to you know interact with nature. and uh, that over time has led to a relatively cathartic event and now now you're sick. Do you know it's everyone always thinks there's like a a breaking point without any crescendo. you know there's there's you know, and I'm like that's not really how things work. not everything's an accident. Do you know what I mean? Or was it
0: uh, fate? I've heard a couple different people say this: that that if you don't choose something, it's it's about where you draw your sort of personal boundaries around the idea of the self. That if if you don't see something as a choice, it's going to appear outside of yourself. You know, like if it's mm-hmm. if you know that if you. I mean, and we don't really, you know, this is something that I, I think we don't really have as human beings uh, total agency over. So it's kind of an endless regress, you know. Um, but you know, it's it's uh, it's complicated as far as you know where where one's will ends and where you know fate begins right like it's all mm-hmm. sort of folded over together like a baklava but i think most you know most people would agree that that you do have some agency in you know s- choosing where to, to sort of take over a story you know in the in your interpretation of it bare minimum mm-hmm. you know that that we have a choice to reflect on things in a way that that sort of restores our contribution to the outcome of our lives yeah i mean i think that what what's coming up for me
2: as i'm listening to you michael is like that thing that we hear similarly in lots of different wisdom traditions about you know i may not be able to stop thought because it's the dynamic energy of mind, right? But the relationship to the arising of that phenomenon or really of any other phenomenon um, is something that there's a space for choice making within, right? So like I can, you know, in a Buddhist context, right? I can push it away. I can pretend it's not there or I can cling to it. I think that there's probably other iterations, right? But at the same time, um, I can decouple Right from like the wind blows. I feel it, but I don't have to think that I'm the wind. Similarly, like with these things that are arising within me, you know, they can arise, they can be observed, they can be experienced. But, you know, in terms of that self other world boundary, I, I have, I think some, um, I in quotes here, uh, some capacity to shift the topology of that so that the self is not entirely wedded to those other things as if they were all inside of it but at the same time um the self is recognizably interpenetrating and interdependent with all these things right so if i can kind of be in this space where i'm i'm rhythmically dancing amongst those and not particularly fixed on or within anyone, I think it allows for uh, room to navigate in a way that might afford more agility and potentially you know, more grace, even if it doesn't necessarily look like it from anybody else's point of view. Um,
0: right. Yeah, I, I just saw a talk at the Santa Fe Institute by Columbia neuroscientist Stuart Firestein. He was making a case for a philosophical optimism and and he was grounding this in uncertainty he's like most people are taught science as a process by which we come to certainty about something and that's very 19th century and like basically no one no one worth their salt in the sciences actually believes this anymore you know that that we all recognize uh (laughs) <laughs> our, I think it's on record our, our president saying that most scientists are pseudoscientists. Uh you know because we can't help it. You know as human beings we do we do crave certainty and we have fa- fabulous ways of tricking ourselves into believing that we're making re- reasonable arguments, you know rationalizing. Uh you know this our our doubt in a way that points the doubt uh in the wrong direction. But mm-hmm. but the You know, uh, among people who recognize that one of the sort of governing principles of the cosmos is its fundamental uncertainty because the map itself changes the territory. And when you have, you know, like in an economy, if you have everybody mapping everyone else's strategies and then responding to them, then the landscape itself is changing faster than the map's. You know, the maps are changing the landscape, but like there's no way that you're ever going to be able to arrive at a fully deterministic uh, understanding of, of what's going on. And this is, you know, this this is something that in at least some areas of the sciences came out of, you know, understanding, you know, the the fundamental chaos of of weather and this kind of thing. So. So Firestein is saying that, you know optimism not in the original sort of uh, panglossian sense of this is the best of all possible worlds but in a modern a more modern sense in which there is an opportunity to improve you know that there's 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 room for improvement and that we have some agency in that improvement and you know he points to Research linking depression to people's sense of inevitability, you know, uh, that, uh, you know, this, all of this stuff about like the hyperactive default mode network in the brain and like the way that we feel locked into our narratives, you know, that like that we're not capable of changing our story. And so it, we end up just becoming miserable and, so he was saying, well, this, this uncertainty is an escape hatch from that. It's an opportunity to, to steer something. because, And the example that he gave was uh, sailing. You know, that, that ultimately you can't fully know or control the wind or the water. Uh, but you can work with these forces to get where you want to go. You know that you can tack into the wind and so this uh you know this sort of cybernetic approach you know buckminster fuller talked about how he he identified as the trim tab Mm -hmm. you know which is that little the little rudder on the rudder that steers the you know like so you you turn this one little piece and that one piece actually it's kind of like trying to shut the door before opening it like if, if the you know the trim tab makes it easier to turn the entire rudder because there's less resistance against that one tiny little surface area than against the entire, the entire flap, you know? So you look out the window of your next time, if you're ever on a commercial flight again, right? Um, You'll, you'll see these on the wings of the plane. And, and uh, you know, that this is, this is just a way of working with the, you know, the this these forces over which, you know, we don't have a lot of control, but we can steer things in small ways that then sort of amplify and uh we can leverage all of that to get where we want to go, at least to get you know, to move in the direction of our our target. So it's you know, it's an interesting It was an interesting talk. Uh, He got a lot of pushback and I was kind of glad to see him get a lot of pushback because I don't think that it's as simple to try and give people, you know, like confidence intervals rather than sure things. You know, I think it's going to take, you know, to get back to this sort of broader issue of like breakdown as breakthrough. I spend a lot of time thinking about societal collapse, as I'm sure you both do. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is another area where I'm not convinced that most people are thinking about this in the right way, you know, that, that we look at the failure of certain systems as, you know, a just a, an, a, a setback on this linear road to progress. Right. And I'm not sure that that's what it is because it's very i think the evidence is mounting that we've been heading in a a wrong direction mm. you know or that mm-hmm. there are there are you know other dimensions um like you know like the erosion of topsoil in you know large yield agri- you know big agriculture is that progress i don't think so you know like mm. surely we've learned in some we've learned some important stuff about how to grow enormous amounts of food but at the same time we're also wasting most of that food while also undermining the soil upon which we depend
2: and the food itself because we've undermined yeah. the quality of the soil doesn't actually have much nutritive value so we're looking at a quantity right. over quality it's nutrient non-dense Sort of sustenance, right? Which produces its own set of second, third, fourth order knock on effects where you end up with these kinds of like when you were talking with Tyson about modern medicine, right? And he's like, when has modern medicine ever fucking helped me, right? Like <laughs> penicillin curing <laughs> yeah. syphilis? We didn't fucking have syphilis, mm-hmm. right? So, yes, it creates solutions, but it creates solutions to the problems that it's generating, and the solutions generate more potential problems, which like just locks this whole thing into this kind of infinite regress, you know, Mm -hmm. where it's like, well, back to the Charles Eisenstein moment, you know, the convalescence period, right? Of an illness is this, it's like a retreat in, in the sort of classic spiritual sense enforced from something, from some, if we're going to go cybernetic, some mind that is bigger than the individuated, like, pseudo-identity that I walk around thinking is Terran, right? So, like, again, to Tyson, if if you don't move the land, the land's going to move you, right? So there is, it seems to me, at least today, like, globally, civilizationally, we're in this moment where, You know, the illness is coming to a crescendo point, right? Where, like, you know, it's going to build and then it has to drop. And that drop, I mean, I don't know what the fuck's going to happen because I would say that things are beyond uncertain. I would say they're indeterminate and Mm -hmm. probably always have been, um, at least to a mind that's as small as mine. But, (laughs) you know, clearly something... And things probably not the right word, but we'll use it because it's English has to shift right in Mm -hmm. a way that is not based on any of these like, well, if I do this with this, then I can fix this. If I, you know, if we fix the carbon situation, then everything is going to be fine. If I put more fertilizer in the soil, you know, if I kill these bugs and these weeds, it's like what Bonnie Roy would call a God problem, right? We think Mm -hmm. we know better than nature, Mm -hmm. how to nature as if somehow we were outside of it and we could like actually see all of the different, you know, aspects of this kind of multidimensional system at play. Right. Which from a Taoist perspective is just horseshit. (laughs) You know, Schwantze would, would just be laughing his ass off. I mean, usually that's what he was probably doing if he existed as a person, but you know, none of that hubris like seems to, help us sail that boat or navigate that you know i i would often use a wind surfer as that similar analogy um you know in talking about psychedelic experiences with people and how to navigate them is that like you know the wind the ocean these are forces that are so much vaster than it's possible for me to comprehend but there is a way that if i can ground myself in perception in this moment i might be able to to work in harmony with them in such a way that i can not end up having them destroy me but if i try to fight with them or pretend that somehow like it's really about what i want rather than about you know how to navigate and dance with what's arising i'm going to be toast to some Mm -hmm. degree right maybe entirely toasted um
1: well, I think part of this is tied into the. <laughs> bear with me a second. The, like the notion of um, like GDP and the idea of like what we're worth, right? Because <clears throat> if these ideas of progress are are all from a human and a human civilization perspective, and if we're, you know, like Tyson kind of talks about, you know if the nature and our human community is extended to, you know, envelop each other, and then we start to, you know, qualify, quantify, or at least, um, you know, value the relationship between nature and the human world, and somehow that is what we're aiming towards, like somehow a symbiont that's actually mutually beneficial, um, then our choices start to, make more sense like that, right?
0: Yeah. I mean, I you know, it's it's funny working for the last 3 years in a place that is entirely devoted to formal mathematical models of an uncertain world. And mm. you know, to I think there's much to say in favor of this. I have great respect for the work that these researchers are doing. And but I think more deeply for the fact that all of them realize that there is a sort of fundamental pluralism required here that like contrary to popular opinion uh you know complex system science and science generally is not looking for a theory of everything anymore um i mean you still hear this sometimes out of like particle physics (laughs) like Mm, but really they're mm. talking about a very specific thing they're talking about trying to figure out a way to to like unify gravity and electromagnetism you know whereas uh you know when you're talking about how do we study the human mind how do we study social behavior how do we study evolution or disease or the economy uh it's you know it's it there's a sweet spot actually, where it's not, it's not precisely the more models that we can bring to bear on a situation, the better, but you definitely want more than one, Um, you know, up to, I mean, Mm -hmm. there's a threshold at which point it's like too many things to consider at one time, too many different possibilities. And, you know, so there's this, this tension between, you know, uh, flexibility in your thinking, or, you know, the robustness of multiple perspectives on something. And then also just like the real constraints that we face as people trying to understand things, you know, the amount of time, attention, you know, blood glucose, et cetera, uh, you know, <laughs> research funding, whatever. Um, and and mm-hmm. so at any rate, you know, uh, but the point of that is that like, living in this space, like cooking in this stew for years I feel like, you know, to your point, Lucas, I've I've really become convinced that every. I'm now. I'm going to start sounding like Nora Bates in here. Uh, Do it, but yeah. But I feel <laughs> like I feel like, as noble as this effort is, there's no escape from the reality of the fact that our maps are cutting an undivided being into pieces and then like only acknowledging some of those pieces. Mm. And, and so like, when you look at this in terms of the effects of, you know, economic or financial models on the real lives of humans and non-humans, it's, I, I think it's impossible for me to argue that, you know, other like any other way than, like profit is theft, you know, because like you, you, mm-hmm. we get into this idea that like people generate like the entire, the entire sort of techno optimist innovation solutionist thing, you know, that, we, that we just spoke to about like trying to solve our way out of the problems that our last solution created uh, this, this like S- uh, solutions. Yeah. I mean, it is, it is, uh, in you know in some limited way a solution um but you know the the problem is that you know say that so there's this issue of economic externalities right you know and then you know you your profit your revenue model depends in some sense on you ignoring the cons- like the exhaust that you're belching into the ecosystem and the long-term costs of you know your industrial pollution to the well-being of your community and your own your own children and so on that's like a that's a crude and obvious example at this point for most people i think or maybe i'm just biased by hanging around with great people Probably. Um, yeah yeah but the, but like it, it's it it the same logic adheres in even more subtle situations. You know, like I'm delighted to see uh, when I go on Twitter now that people realize that the idea of ecosystem services is inadequate, you know, that like we can try and patch that particular problem by acknowledging the fact that like a hectare of rainforest generates so much oxygen and, you know, other, other nutrients and so on. And therefore, you know, all of this economy that we're measuring sits on top of this much larger economy that we're not measuring. But by attempting to render all of that legible in the quantitative, you know, by trying to like financialize the, you know, the carbon cycle, um, I mean, other than the fact that that ties it into like totally catastrophic, uh, like speculative market type dynamics. You know, where suddenly people can, you know, like, do you really want the rainforest to be like on the stock market? And people are like, I mean, that's a disaster, Mm. but, but like, you know, it, it also ignores basically every other thing that we haven't learned that a forest does yet, you know? And so it doesn't actually fix the problem. It just kicks the can down the street, you know, and, and does so by enfolding all of this stuff into this this system that is attempting this, this, like, uh, catastrophic God's eye view type project, you know, and so I really like I had a great conversation with uh, this podcast greater than code mm. about this, you know, because that's kind of their whole thing is like, you know, what doesn't end up in the in the model? Well, you know, mm.
2: and like external, uh, the thing about externalities for me that always like rings a bell, in my consciousness is like external to what right like what closed system like where how is it possible that these things are external they're only external to the things that you know we're selecting to pay attention to from a particular vantage point which generally when we're talking about that that vantage point is like late stage hyper capitalistic commodified everythingness right and so it's like i mean i i i You know, one of the things in your conversation uh, with Tyler on complexity um, that you just released or, you know, is when he's like, "Yeah, Tyler,
0: Tyler Morgidas. Yeah, that conversation is
2: totally amazing. Right. And uh, he makes this really lovely point about, you know, we're using ecosystems as like the metaphor of the moment. And I mean, I love Mm -hmm. that that's Mm -hmm. what we're using. And at the same time, there will be a next metaphor or model. Right. There is some way that it's going to keep iterating or just that our understanding of what ecosystems, even if that were to stay the word, you know, as you were pointing out a second ago, like, what don't we know about the way that this model does and does not unfold these different dynamical processes that we, you know, sort of like experience and call reality. So. Yeah, I don't know where I'm going with that, but (laughs) I'll just I'll just let it let it hang there for a second. (laughs)
0: I mean, I actually, you know, to, to me, this has a a kind of flag planted. Uh, I mean, not in like an ownership way, but like there is a <laughs> there is a clear sort of place that this leads, uh, which to me is a respect for everything that's actually upstream of the production of scientific knowledge.
3: Mm.
0: You know that that basically. We in this modern society enshrine the, you know, the, the scientific method as, you know, sort of the the, the zenith of human capacity, um, or you know that this is this is where the buck stops as far as as you know facts and knowledge are concerned. But like my experience of this, and I know that I'm biased because I worked as an artist full-time for like 13 years before taking this, this science communication job. But like I I reflect a lot on William Irwin Thompson, the the MIT and Syracuse historian who quit academia in the 1970s to try and found this this think tank for planetary culture called the Lindisfarne Association. And I highly, highly recommend that that people go back to the recordings of those conferences that he held. Um, the, the the Schumacher Center for New Economics has like days and days of recordings that are freely available online, uh, where he and and people like Paolo Soleri, Stuart Brand, um, uh, just I mean, it's it's a it's a list of like a Lynn Margulis. It's like who's who of latter twentieth century thought. We're all convening to figure out kind of what lay beyond this technocratic paradigm. And Bill Thompson, as just an incomparable historian of consciousness, said that the way that knowledge comes into the world is first through the crazies and then the artists and then the savants and then the pedants. You know, and so like, where is science in that? Like I say, science, scientists typically occupy like the ones that we regard as truly visionary are actually kind of more like the artists in this sense. Mm. And they're way ahead of their time. And it takes decades or centuries for the savants to catch up to what they have seen and then to properly formalize it like, you know, like uh, Fermat's Last Theorem. You know, like he didn't leave complete notes and it took mathematicians hundreds of years to actually like confirm that he had, you know, that he'd come upon this in, in his own and, you know, and that he was actually right this whole time and not just blowing smoke. Right. Well, like uh, Gaudi. Yeah. So, I mean, Gaudi is like, uh, you know, a, a you know, a completely uh, over a century ahead of the rest, ahead of the rest of architecture, you mm-hmm. know. Um, and now we're finally getting to this point where we can like design structures algorithmically and then 3d print them. And it's coming out, all of this stuff is looks, looks like Gaudi, you know, (laughs) because it's, because it's like, it's got that sort of biomimetic respect. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. So I think, you know, honestly, I'd love to hear more from the two of you. I know I'm the guest, but I know I've been been (laughs) doing most of the talking, but like just to wrap this thought, um. I you know I, I, I have a lot more respect now for the the role of the arts in as like the you know, the reconnaissance of human understanding. Mm-hmm. you know, and like, if I were to see this knowledge project as kind of a a city, then the crazies are like the the shamans or whatever that live on the very edge of society and then the artists are the ones that are in like the minarets and spy towers, you know, around the, the city wall. And then they're reporting to the people that are the next layer in those, that's the scientists. And then the very core is the bureaucrats. And like, honestly, all of them depend on each other. Right. Because like there's no point in watching a wall that like no one is there to maintain or like no one's there to like bring you food you know while you're you're performing your guard duty but you know yeah that's i think you know you see these four classes of people like bite each other's backs all the time and it's just insane and i think it's really important to recognize kind of where everyone is structurally in in terms of the the sort of condensation of our maps
2: and you know if we continue with the exploratory theme of like the self other world boundary that seems to be Coming up in this conversation. It's like, on the one hand, there are these four extremely different types of beings, right? The crazy, the artist, the savant, and the pedant. On the other hand, right, the city is a being, right? And all of those different orientations to experience exist within each ostensible individual, right? And so, one of the things that I was thinking about too when you were talking about. You know, science, I can't remember. It was a couple of uh, thought streams ago, but, you know, is how much I appreciate science as a beautiful way of knowing, but it's a way of knowing, right? I I have never been somebody, for whatever reason, who thought of it as, like, the end all be all, even when there was, I feel like at this moment, there's a lot more um, public conversation about the fact that it is a way of knowing, but growing up, I'm 49 like it was just the way of knowing and everything outside of science was wrong right even though with even a cursory understanding of the history of science we could see that you know scientific revolutions happen paradigm shift like hats off to thomas kuhn right i mean it's like ideas that were true aren't true anymore or are contingent which seems to me to be uh one of the major themes of the knowledge project right is that like You know models change we understand things right we're both expanding and limiting like tyler was saying in that same conversation which i'm just going to keep referencing because it was so awesome um you know so how do we cultivate a capacity to dance between amongst within these different ways of relating to experience sort of arising in in this in this world right how do we you know like if i'm only in the crazy space i may not be getting that food so like how can i have a a relationship to my own inquiry where i can allow things to come in or come up or come through and then find ways to kind of um ground them and unfold them into some relational context with all of my kin right uh human other than human more than human however you want to frame it right but definitely not just isolated to you know me and my kid and my you know my sisters um and the other thing that well now let's let's put a pin in that and see if either of you guys have something to riff off of from there.
1: I mean, always when I'm um, listening to, or I'm listening cause I'm half the time not participating in these conversations other <laughs> than non-verbally, but um, I always get imagery. I'm, I'm, I'm a very visual kinesthetic kind of learner and it, it, I'm wondering if, you know, your idea of like an ideal kind of, evolution of our species as being like kind of um you know like a a hippie businessman man meaning like we're going about our days and we're putting on the suits we're we're acting our parts but at the same time we're like totally psychedelically tripping out and like experiencing everything as one and just like you know we're (laughs) we're interacting with our you know um with our spirits with our ancestors with like you know entities that are not corporeal, you know what I mean? And just like feeling the earth, like, is that, I mean, it sounds awesome to me, feel it it, visually in my mind, it seems awesome, but also like, is that sustainable? (laughs) Like, can we do that?
0: I mean, I feel like this is a good opportunity to speak to cognitive dissonance, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, How I've been in plenty of situations in my life where I don't do a great job of hiding how weird I am. <laughs> <laughs> and yet I find myself in these positions time and time again, where I am required to do that. And, you know, I, th- I think the the masterclass I got on this was when I was uh, illegally searched in a crooked county in texas and brought up on marijuana charges back in 2012 and spent three years under state supervision and (laughs) learned that you know due to weird like because my my case was sort of uh carried across county lines by uh, as a courtesy and so i was actually under supervision by two different probation officers with two different understandings of the the like the code that I had to follow that I, I ended up sort of in this catch 22 and like accidentally violating my probation. <laughs> um, so like, Jesus. and, and, and like, you know, I learned in that case, I was just actually talking about something kind of similar problem with my, my father last night about, you know, he, he has never found it in a, a problem in his life not to be forthright. You know, he's like, you don't have to lie; you just not, don't have to tell people everything. And <laughs> and uh, you know, I learned that I learned that uh, in a really weird way, uh, and and it was frustrating because to me, I, you know, not being honest, not being completely authentic, like forthright and open and communicative, to me does feel like a crime against myself uh, and yet I was in a situation where I had no choice or I'd end up in jail um, and so you know I was really angry at the time it seemed like what they were doing whether they meant to or not was teaching good people how to be dishonest you know and yet I think mm-hmm. generally speaking that's what you know that's that that's not unique to a you know a crooked system in which, one one, you know, one of the judges I had ended up getting uh, disbarred for withholding exonerating Jesus. evidence in a murder trial, and the other one Whoa. ended up in federal prison for selling machine guns to Mexican gangsters. It's not like it doesn't have to be that extreme. Jesus. Like there's like all of these ways. There's all of these ways that that we. Are in this weird sort of Shakespearean tragic way forced to hide things about ourselves in order to compute, like in order to be interoperable with the rest of society. I mean, and this, this gets back mm-hmm. to the issue of like externalities, you know, like,
3: mm-hmm.
0: all basically everybody I know wants to bring their full self to work. And mm-hmm. yet. We don't get to do that, Um, you know, because we have a job description and, you know, whatever, you know, whatever sort of computation uh, the organizations that we work for are doing, um, they're like way up there in the plane and we're down on the ground. And, like, it's honestly unreasonable to expect them to ever be able to figure out a way to, like fold all of you into the organization in any kind of productive way. And and so I, I have a, a lot of sympathy for the devil in this respect. But yeah, to your point about about you know the hippie businessman, like I, I, I was reading an article recently about a guy in Silicon Valley who like was the founding CEO of this startup and ended up being run out of his own startup by the board because he had it, he admitted to taking acid like that, that he was, you know, that there was a point at which the company reached this level where it was no longer sort of his company. And he, he had to, you know, like the rules change, at a certain scale and that's no longer you know you're not it's not professional to to admit to microdosing and so mm-hmm. sorry guy but you're out you know and and it's just like i feel like this is like what you're speaking to is this i think it's like the the pandemic underneath the pandemic you know, mm. it's like what the pandemic has revealed by forcing everybody to work from home and like, oh, here are your kids and, you know, you're, you know, this is all your, all of your stuff. You know, you're not, you know, we've got those like virtual backgrounds on Zoom, but like, you know, the, the, the famous video of the attorney who's like shows up wearing <laughs> the, the cat face. He can't, yeah. he, he doesn't know how to fix it. And he's like stuck wearing this, you know, that's very, that's very Shakespeare. um, Although Midsummer Night's Dream is a comedy. But I mean, but yeah, that's, I, I feel like this, one of the problems that we're working out in this generation is how to reconcile the, the personal and the professional. And, and I see people mm-hmm. doing it. I know people like uh, I know that, you know, this guy, John gold who works in decentralized autonomous organizations. Uh, he works with the creator cabin project and, and uh, he's just always posting on, on Twitter about like the other day he was like, you know, some companies, some startups have white papers. My comp- my startup has rolling papers, you know, oh, <laughs> <laughs> and it's just like, I, I look at him and I'm like, you are like a mile ahead of me on this journey. Mm-hmm. You know, like mm-hmm. there's, n- I, I cannot imagine this. And that's, a, that's where I am. Right. Like, please, for the love of God you know, in another year or two, let me be working for an organization that is just like warts and all like, let's go. Mm -hmm. That's not a bug. That's a feature. Like we want Mm -hmm. the whole you. And I think everybody wants that and not everybody's going to get that. That's a mark of absurd privilege. But like, that is, that is a goal as far as the long arc of justice is concerned.
2: One of the things I wonder as I'm hearing you talk about this Michael is like, So I, I hear you on the, the wish to be authentic and forthright. And at the same time, like as somebody who has occupied a lot of, or had the opportunity to engage in a lot of different kinds of spaces and contexts, I, I definitely have this experience of not really being the same person in those different spaces. Right. So. I think where I'm wandering with this is like one way that I have framed that in the past is somehow I'm like withholding parts of myself. And Mm -hmm. that's certainly been a thing that I've done. And then, um, and, and that would have a feeling that accompanied it. Usually like that wasn't a choice that I was making, even though it clearly was, but it somehow felt like what I had to do. But then there have been the times when I've just like shown up in the way that feels most resonant and reasonable, for lack of a better word, and whatever those contexts were, which still didn't involve me necessarily talking about all of the different facets of my experience or of my life. And there might be things that I'd be like, yeah, I don't know that I need to talk about all the psychedelic ceremonial work at the catering company. Um, <laughs> yeah, you know, right. or like while I'm tending bar. But I can talk about non-dual meditation. That's not too too weird for this situation. Right. Um that there's a there's like a, a attenuation titration like, you know, dosage question sometimes mm-hmm. as I navigate, right? Like, you know, leaning into that, like there's not anything that is medicine or poison. It's all about it's all about dosage, right?
0: oh for sure so you know, like, yeah.
2: that's just the where i'm wondering into no goodness. thanks
0: for keeping me honest uh you know there's, <laughs> the, like robert keegan's uh book in over our heads the mental demands of modern life speaks Ooh. to this particular issue directly you know it says that basically the reason so many people struggle in life is because they have trouble in in this modern world navigating between these different social spaces that elicit different personae, you know, and, and that a lot of people just struggle being, you know, presenting a different facet of themselves with, at home with their family than they do at work or they, with their parents or, you know, in court or whatever. And yeah, I mean, it, it is absurd based on everything we've already said in this conversation to propose that there is like an authentic self and I know mm-hmm. what that guy is, mm-hmm. you know? And, and uh, so, yeah, yes to everything you've just said. Um, and yet at the same time, I think it's, it sort of speaks to again, that, that uh you know if you think about i, I had this conversation with uh, jonas dalaga on complexity podcast who who is a a physicist studying beliefs using physics models to to understand how people sort of form and then like move through a landscape of beliefs you know and we spent a lot of the time on that call talking about cognitive dissonance as a as you know, in a physics sense, like, uh, you know, being sort of between two different phases of matter, you know, it's an uncomfortable place to be, to have to hold two different, you know, two apparently completely contradictory belief systems at the same time. And that is, uh, you know, uh, was it Fitzgerald? Uh, Who was it that said, yeah, that, that like, that's a mark of, uh, you know, and a sophisticated mind. uh, That is the challenge that we're presented with. Now it's, it's not necessarily that there is some sort of ontologically absolute bedrock, authentic self per se, so much as it is that it is a great challenge to have to like shape shift Mm -hmm. between all of these things while maintaining a coherent core you know, mm-hmm. that like that it it takes so much effort for the same reason that, you know, the, the issue of like, uh, you know, science communication and the challenge of communicating uncertainty, right. you know, the challenge of communicating that. Oh, well, we're we're like 95 percent sure about this, you know, but like most people want like actually in that Firestein talk, when I asked him a question about about the real constraints that his model of optimism is up against. Uh, he brought up the story about Harry Truman saying, can someone please find me a one-handed scientist? (laughs) (laughs) You know, because everybody's saying, well, on the other hand, right. (laughs) But it's just like, I'm fighting a war here. Like I need some clarity. And to your point,
2: Michael, it's like, so there's the Fitzgerald of holding two ideas that are in opposition, but we're not holding two ideas anymore. Hmm. We're holding like eight, 12, 40 I don't know, 64, some number of ideas that, like, yeah. are somehow all orthogonal to each other and, like, in opposition, paradoxically, but they're no longer on a binary. Like, so, yes, I mean, the flip, of course, is that I'm totally sympathetic to the fact that this this navigation project gets more and more complex
1: as we roll here. But I like that idea of, you know, you're kind of adapting to your environment, like, um if we were somehow to like observe us as a species you know you could say that oh okay in terms of their um personalities and expressions they seem to adapt to different environments like a chameleon like literally you're trying to you know keep yourself safe from predators well in their work environment they seem to to dull down their their sense of joy f- for you know um everyday experiences or whatever, and so that it allows them to focus on their work more. But then in their in their private life, they seem to dull down any sense of, like, talking about math or business, you know? And they really, you know, lean into this, you know, sensual experience. Do you know what I mean? Like, maybe it's not a bad thing for us. We're just adaptive.
0: Well, right. But, like, at what point do you like it, if it, again to think about this in in terms of like phase transitions and states of matter and and so on there are good reasons to be concerned that what we're being asked to do is really beyond the capacity of a human being yeah in and you know that that the i mean not living in the modern world like clearly many many people are capable of Self-authoring a value system that allows them to, to you know, navigate this kind of uh, plurality uh, of social demands, but you know, I mean, we there's a reason that we're social organisms in the first place, right? And 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 that's because we we actually benefit from having kind of some kind of fixity. As individuals, that then supports a, a greater collective project of understanding and and you know navigating this this you know so like there's a there's a fabulous article that came up in Eon magazine uh, uh, maybe a couple months ago about I think it was I'm trying to remember was it Dan Sperber who either wrote or co-authored this article about the 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 utility of argument. And said that, you know, people get emotionally attached to a position uh, because it actually makes the argument last long enough for it to get somewhere, you know, and, and that like, as long as everyone in the group is, you know, c- c- agreed that we have is sharing a goal and then it's, then it's okay the Wright brothers was the the example they gave famous, famously argumentative, um, but it, it allowed them to not settle on a solution before they'd actually found the best solution, you know, and that the, the problem in the polarized modern sort of political landscape is not the polarization per se. It's the fact that people are not sharing a common goal in the discourse that everybody is. You know, so it's like, you may, you know, conflicts of interest and stalemates are well, well established to be like overall net positives for our process of, of collective understanding. You know, um, like for, there's like a lot of reasons why, you know, that that's the case. Um, but, you know, on some level, it's like, if you don't have a, if you don't have a position, then we we just end up pooling identities into like this local minimum, like whatever you know. Like I'll just shift into whatever is easiest, you know. Like I'll I'll just become interoperable. And actually, I'll, I'll be interviewing uh, this uh, author Eric Howell on Future Fossils here soon, and he he wrote an interesting piece on his, his Substack recently about the problem of living in a surveillance society is that people become boring. (laughs) You know, that like Mm. nobody wants to stick their neck out. And, you know, I have a, a Renee DePaul who is a, a a Brazilian friend of mine, like a a pen pal. Um, he, and I were, he introduced me to this term sincere, which is like, I was like, oh, man, you know what? I feel attacked (laughs) that like, you know, that that we we're you know, we live in this this time where uh, the amount of scrutiny that everyone is under, the the longevity of our public records, the, you know, all of this stuff around. The way that, pardon me, something that something um, that makes sense within one cultural context, it's not just that we're navigating all these different spaces; is that the walls between all of these spaces have also come down, and so you know, this is I talked, I know, Taryn, I know, I talked about this with with Tyson Caporta about how suddenly, like something that, you know, that you're 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 being like hung out to dry by people that actually are completely outside of the sort of inferential radius of what you're actually saying, you know, or what you're actually doing. And so we have all these culture shock. It's just like one massive sort of, uh, you know, misunderstanding that we're all pinned to the wall by now. And, and so, you know, Eric Howell is saying that, you you know, you're people are going to stop sticking their necks out. You know, they're going to stop taking risks, you know, because it's the, the world is too precarious and the consequences is too great. And, you know, I don't know that I don't know that his sort of like linear projections of where we are right now and the problems we're facing now uh, are reliable mm-hmm. as far as, you know, looking forward another 30 years. Right. But I do see it as a serious issue. Mm. it's a serious issue I continue to bang up against it's like the it's like the plate glass door I keep running into in my own life mm-hmm. you know
1: and you mean in the sense of like not just like like China where there's literally cameras you know um put all across the the countries everywhere um by the government to surveil you're talking about the fact that anything interesting happening in the world, everyone whips out their phone and and has to record it and then it's poof, into the internet and everybody sees it that kind of thing like there's just more eyes in general on us is that what you mean
0: well i mean when i was at burning man in 2013 i camped with this woman who told me that she got fired because she used uh profanity on social media on her her personal account which was unattached to her her work identity wow in any way and you know that we live you know, we live like <laughs> given labor laws. Like there was no way for her to contest this. Uh, that's that's the kind of thing I'm talking about. You know, yeah. I'm I'm talking about the the way that we are decontextualized, and there and then you know, like there's a I, I really respect Europe for the their laws about what do they call it? The like the not the walk of shame. But like in America, if somebody is indicted for a crime, the news is on it, you know, and, and these people's reputation, even if they're innocent of the crime, they will forever be associated with that crime. Whereas in Europe, you know, there are, they're very careful as to protect the identity of the accused until they are convicted, Mm. you know, and generally speaking, I think the, the world is trending towards this sort of more uh american way of doing things that it's just like it's more you know we're we're more interested in in the sensational Mm -hmm. than we are in in you know the integrity of of the individual and you know the way that this tragic mismatch between you know what what we need as people and and kind of like what our systems want as you know hype machines right you know Mm -hmm. this is an issue and it's yeah it's not just it's not just about phones Mm -hmm. it's just about the way that all of us are living in glass houses basically
2: well and i think you know for so many of us so much of our lives even prior to the pandemic is conducted through digital mediation right so then it's like that just increases that exposure which is i think what you're speaking to michael and then you know to not do that either is a an opportunity of privilege or has to do with the fact that you're in such a precarious position that it's not an option right but like in terms of the the vast majority of us are somewhere in in between those two poles right and often it seems like unaware of the exposure until there's something that is quasi-catastrophic that happens that lets us know how exposed we were, right? And then right. It's, it's late to be considering what might or might not have been done. Lucas, back to your point about like, I don't know what I did today that made me have this problem, <laughs> right? But unless it's an acute event, you know,
3: mm-hmm. that
2: it's, you know, the answer to that question is, well, let's talk about, your entire life and every factor that we can you know wrap our minds around because that's going to help us have some way of a beginning to understand what might have given rise to this and even so we're still only going to be able to approximate it because you know both the mind can't hold all the variables and also you know butterfly effect in its true sense like we can't we
1: can't model everything like we just can't um yeah, it makes me feel like we're getting closer and closer to a, a world where, um, not only do you have to fit within your parameters of whatever professional, you know, career that you're choosing, but you have to. You have to be a certain kind of person, and certain personality traits or certain, you know, tendencies aren't aren't uh, tolerated whatsoever at all. There was this um, a couple years ago. I saw. Um, one of George Lucas's first films, like his student film or something. It's really, really long. I can't remember. The na- the name is like letters and numbers. And I don't remember what those are. But do you know what I'm talking about? THX1138. There you go. So it's it's a really interesting film. And it basically, it's like these, everybody is basically medicated just constantly because you you don't want to feel anything, right? And I feel like, I don't know, we're getting dangerously close to that, especially, like, as you're saying, you know, in this surveillance state, you know, if you're not allowed to express something here in this context, uh, in reaction to something, you know, I mean, that's a pretty normal thing. So if I'm outraged because somebody gaslit me, let me have my moment. I'll be cool in a second, but I need to just, blah, you know, um, I know that's not very zen, but, like, <sighs> sometimes you got to emote. Otherwise, you're going to, you know, get frustrated and end up with shoulder pain
0: yeah i mean i i think something that's coming up for me in 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 all of this is that it's not just about the robert keegan like navigating between spaces that you understand right that it's like well i can't you know i don't know how to bring all of me into this space and like that or like i don't know how to like have this multi-dimensional thing but but actually that you don't necessarily. Back to the Midsummer Night's Dream thing. You don't necessarily know who you're. T- you're actually talking to. You don't know what space mm, you're in mm-hmm. at any given time. Yep. This is. This is. You know. This is the classic. Uh, I mean, I've. I'm. Wondering now what will happen to me, because I accidentally answered a message that was sent to my workplace. As Michael thinking that it was a message sent to my, my personal inbox, mm. you know, and mm-hmm. we'll, we'll see how much, uh, how much understanding. I, I mean, I work with some really great people, but you know, the fact is that this thing ha- like we're in a, like an impossible situation now. Right. Um, I think generally because it's very, very difficult to know You know, if it were as clear as, well, this is the person I'm supposed to be at any given time, I consider that a privilege at this point, Mm -hmm. you know, I consider Mm it, I consider it like a, a, a shrinking Island, you know, for those, for those people that are still like, like my father, when I, when I talk with him about this and he's like, just leave it at work. I'm like, how, (laughs) how do you do that? Where is that
2: boundary? Yes.
0: Where, how do you leave work at work Mm -hmm. in, in 2021? It's not
1: like coming home from the mill, you know?
0: No, that's
1: not silly what he did, but
0: no, I mean, it's not even it's yeah, it's, but like the, the, you know, I, 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 uh, had a, I, I, for whatever reason, I tend to frame everything in terms of Jurassic park. I, I was, uh, Neo Jurassic podcast had me on last year. This is like Jurassic park fan podcast. And I was talking about this. I was like, this film is actually such a profound allegory for where we are now as a, as a, as a species Uh, because you can't, you know, the fences are down, you know, Mm -hmm. the dinosaurs are out. I think one of my favorite jokes from last year was uh, on the heels of Disney announcing the reopening of its parks that you know somebody put together this 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 video that was like a message from jurassic parks pr department that's like Mm -hmm. we're reopening you know like it's like Mm -hmm. please you know don't mind the velociraptors that are still running around (laughs) you know (laughs) like how how are we gonna how do we make sense of this space other than to Mm -hmm. just like you know with great bloodshed uh over the course of generations, finally come to a place where we accept these uncertainties Mm -hmm. and, you know, and just that like, there's, there's no real way when, when the fences are down to know whether you're inside the paddock or you're outside the paddock. And does it matter, you know, because Mm -hmm. the T-Rex is on both sides.
1: Right. Yeah.
2: Michael, who was the cat? i'm forgetting his name that you just uh released the future fossils episode with that does the integration work what was his
0: name daniel Schenken. cedar Das.
2: yeah daniel yeah. Schenken. so one of the things that y'all were talking about um and you were really bringing to that conversation in a strong way was this kind of idea of the psychedelic nature of ostensibly non-psychedelic consensual reality at this point which i feel like we're 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 in that space in this part of this conversation, you know? And so I'm thinking of like, there's an, there's a dynamic where part of that is, is definitely catalyzed and mediated by digital communications and the internet, especially. Um, And part of that I think is fueled by the acceleration of, information doubling and a terence mckenna you know slash taylor de chardon like approaching the omega point noosphere sort of dynamic and then i'm like thinking about this delusian notion of the control society even beyond the surveillance state and how there's this like crazy friction and dynamism amongst these forces that are you know there's a there's kind of a yin and yang thing going on within them where there's both expansive and consolidative aspects to them um and you know i'm just sort of like wondering about escape velocity from that particular gravity well to just slam a whole bunch of metaphors in together that maybe don't fit so well (laughs) um and you know back to the modeling thing right like i i i wonder if my limited ability to model what's ongoing um prevents me from really understanding how there is there's some reconciliation possible amongst these seemingly disparate frictional forces. Right. And maybe it's what you say that we finally through generations of blood, sweat and tears and more suffering come into some kind of relationship that's rooted in equanimity with uncertainty and indeterminacy. Um, And I know it's played, but like, I, I think about too the, adolescent species metaphor and that we're like we're you know exploding and freaking out and our hormones you know civilizationally are going in all these directions you know and and our indigenous kin or like and ancestors are sort of laughing like this is some new thing which on the one hand it is and on the other hand like we're still playing these same games right that we've been playing for a really long time but in the um in the way that we've decoupled ourselves from natural rhythms in the modernist experiment right like to turn this maybe at 90 degrees like i don't i don't know still how i see that without a return to a felt embodied relationship to the natural rhythms and cycles of earth, how we ever do anything other than just keep winding this, this thing up and increasing the friction amongst these things. Right. Because somehow, Mm -hmm. you know, it's like, we, we can't breathe in all of it. We Mm -hmm. can't, you know, expand and contract. We can't, um, in any harmonious way, sink ourselves to the seasons.
1: Yeah, I get that because I think it's it, it stems from a divergence of that. Like you're saying, you know, if most of our interactions are uh, limited to a visual audio visual visual audio medium. That we're, we're missing out on a whole lot of senses, um, and that and we interact and communicate on those levels and gather so much information, and and one of those major. Thing, oh, clearly, a byproduct of that is that when you come into a situation and you want to express something, you have no idea the context. So it's like, <clears throat> and you know, it's like contextual pronouns. Now, you know, we need to be like, okay, what's that? You know, first of all, what are your pronouns? Cool. What are you, What's the context we got here? Where are you coming from? Where are you coming from? Where are you coming from? You know, <laughs> okay, this is my piece. <laughs> it's like you get that to a certain degree, in a felt sense, in person, mm. <clears throat> you know, even over the phone to a certain degree, but certainly in person, we feel the room, you know, so you get a sense, oh, I don't want to, I should probably not talk about that, or like, you know, I'm posturing in a certain way, like, and this person's sort of, like, posturing back, oh, okay, gotcha, uh, we're not going to, we're not going to, we're not going to go there, do you know? Yes.
0: Yes. <laughs> <laughs> It's funny because you know I I recently updated my my social media biographies. I guess they're not even long enough to be that. They're just bios. But um, I've to say you know I'm so sick of people telling me I create content, uh, and so I started. I'm trying to popularize this term, context provider. Ooh, nice. uh you know, and I, I think that that is. A dangerous game you know when as we've described over the course of this call there are so many forces that are you know due to the pace of things and the way that everything is you know everyone's trying to optimize things just to stay on the treadmill then you know this was the this was the kickback against I mean, the pushback against Stuart Feierstein was, you know, he was saying, we just need to, you know, we just need to make things a little more complicated. Like, we just need to communicate things in a slightly more, you know, just be more honest about how complicated they are. And I was like, good. Yeah. Yeah, Tell that to any science journalist that is like trying to fight for people's attention in an algorithmic news feed, you know, or, or, or frankly, to any scientist that's trying to like get their paper published you know the the attention co- uh competition game now is so fierce that you know it's it's uh it's kind of career suicide to be honest about how complicated things are just i'm not not because people will reject that but because people just don't even have time for it mm-hmm. or it won't stick out you know like you have to state things forcefully And, you know, and, and so somebody like, I mean, this is the problem of like the, you know, Donald Trump in the post-truth era is that like, you know, that he could just say whatever the hell he wanted and the amount of time it takes to fact check him by that point, there's already mobs of people acting on the bullshit that he had just Mm -hmm. spouted, you know? Mm -hmm. So it's like, we don't, you know, and this was my, I, I don't feel this was a, like a really answered question to Firestein, but that was my question to him was like okay cool but you know who has who in the real world has time like you're you know you're speaking as like a prestigious late career academic you know like you're tenured bro like you've got all the time in the world (laughs) you know nobody nobody's you know like you there's everyone else is precarious Mm -hmm. you know everyone else yeah so so how do we how do we uh reintroduce And I think it's, you know, this to bring it the conversation full circle, this, like the only way that we get time to really like simmer in how complicated things really are is when the treadmill breaks, you know, Mm -hmm. is when, is when you get sick and you have to take a week out of work or, or, you know, the, the, you know cell network goes down and suddenly you actually have to like cook your own food. You can't just order stuff, <laughs> right. you know? So, mm-hmm. I mean, it's weird. Cause I, you know, I, it, I, a lot of people find it really dark and it is dark Uh or it has, it carries a lot of darkness with it, but I'm pretty, you know, my, my optimism is actually I would say in a stronger kind of articulation of this uncertainty in, in as much as like, you know, trying to remove it, like, like you, you know, you just kind of said about, you know, the control society, trying to remove it just makes things worse. Eventually it will become so amplified and so acute that it will, that that won't be an option anymore. In, in some way, you mm-hmm. know, that that we just won't be able to continue bullshitting ourselves in this way. And mm-hmm. as difficult uh, as that's going to be, you know, like I don't want people to die when systems break, mm-hmm. you know, like for me, it really feels like how do we land this thing? You know, how do we stop this uh, this uh, self-destructive behavior before it becomes a problem as as serious as it could be you know like Mm -hmm. and and that takes a heroic effort i think on the part of everybody because like when i had kevin kelly on future fossils you know he's talking about urbanization he's like everybody moving into a city has more choice has more opportunity you know like they're being heroes by leaving their you know this—the this sure thing of their homeland, and and their like oppressive little village life, and moving out into this thing. And I'm like, well, that's funny because like everybody in my generation is looking at people like another guy I'm going to have on the show soon, uh, Jason Snyder, um, who, you know, b- tweets all the time about about home his homesteading in Appalachia, mm-hmm. you mm-hmm. know, and and about the. The inconvenience, the delight, the one, the joyous, profound inconvenience of growing your own food, mm. you know, and and like making friends with your neighbors. Like he he posted, the, I forget who it was. He post he shared this thread from somebody that was like, "This is how you do this: you go to church with your the people that live in the same town as you. You go to their sporting events. You get your kids into into sports. You don't talk. You don't use the word homesteading." You know, like you, you become part of this community rather Mm -hmm. than just like a tourist or, Mm -hmm.
1: you know, a, almost like a sociologist.
0: Yeah. Like you, you you just have to be the person that you're, you know, that this is, this is why these systems exist, you know, like church doesn't, you know, like the, the whole, like, you know everybody knows everybody in the church and everybody knows everybody's secrets versus like go be anonymous in the secular metropolis you know mm. and it's like okay you can't you can't do that when you move back onto the ranch it's like a whole separate set of problems on that one time scale on the time scale of like god damn it i have to participate in the parents association you know but like i'm not you know i'm not getting taco copter sending me my dinner you know (laughs) but like that's you know but that's like if you have the foresight to see that this is what it's going to take to not eat yourself alive you know to like leave something for your kids then yeah we have to restore that that like neighborhood village scale level of organization that you know is where we come from and and we have to restore the respect we have for all of the stuff that modernity threw out because it just seemed so inconvenient you know
1: yeah i dream of canning and like making mom bread kind of thing (laughs) like the idea of growing my own food god but i think that's very brooklyn
0: <laughs> cottage core i'm pretty sure cottage core came out of brooklyn am i
1: like see yeah that's what i'm saying yeah so but i will say some of the best honey you'll find around is from new york city it's crazy that's but a fact because right because there's they're doing all these bee colonies on rooftops and it's like it's awesome <laughs> it's a little mix of worlds but
0: I'll actually now's a good time to shout out to uh, Raphael Lyon, who a listener of Future Fossils and, and Complexity, sent me a few bottles of his mead
1: nice. from Brooklyn.
0: If if you don't know oh. if you don't know him, uh R Lion Studio uh, L Y. Uh, yeah, he's like, hit me up if you're ever in New York. Here's this amazing mead I made on the roof.
1: What? Yeah. Yeah. So Lucas, you have it, a project. Yeah. yeah. It's well, not either have or. A project.
0: You know, um, like the, the city, in, in as much as the city is a, is a, a like a new wilderness, right? Like a concrete mm-hmm. jungle. Then there are, there are ways to sort of restore village living within this space. But man, I think 100%. you're probably up against uh, a real challenge in that regard. You know, yeah. just in terms of the price of real estate alone. You know, and the, and the pace of life and, and the amount, uh, you know, like there's a lot of people have been sort of celebrating this discovery that that as a city gets bigger, the income per capita average income grows at more than the rate of the population. You know, so if you double the population, then that city is gener- like the average income in that city is more than double but recent research out of sfi actually like pulled that average apart and showed that like surprising no one i would imagine <laughs> that the average is a, a is kind of a lie because most of that money is going to the top 10%. yeah and like most of like what we're actually seeing is that the income the the inequality is growing faster even faster than the increase in income. Yeah, you know, yeah, I think so. so these so cities they looked at for several years. You know, this urban scaling research made it look like cities were just abundance generators, <laughs> and it turns out they're they're inequality generators.
1: And uh, so, yeah, I think my oops. neighbors would agree. Yeah, because <laughs> <laughs> you know, we have that's what's going on in my neighborhood specifically. There's. I mean, at least ten high rises. So we're making like a new Manhattan in this area, in like Fort Greene, downtown Brooklyn. Yeah, that area. There's there. I don't know what the expectation is, but there are these giant sky rises, like to match the ones in Manhattan. And so they're expecting all this this flood of of people to move to Brooklyn, but like only the 10% maybe maybe the top 20% can afford these kind of places do you know there are definitely you know upper class i doubt it's upper middle class people can, that can actually afford these places so what are we doing here the people who live here like all my neighbors the building i live in this was built in the 1980s and everybody bought immediately so everybody's lived in and in, in this area for you know, 30, 40 years, right? And they're just like, this place has changed, you know, and they're not particularly happy about these high rises because the the property value, um, if, well, if they're wanting to sell, the property value is skyrocketing. But that doesn't mean that their, you know, incomes are increasing or the taxes are certainly increasing. But it's just like, it's me ma- ma- it's certainly creating that tension
0: yeah weird studies podcast which i love shout oh, out yeah. shout out to my my friends of martell and phil ford just yeah. put out an episode recently on the tower the tarot card the tower mm-hmm. that like basically encompasses like this whole section of our conversation and i would recommend that it's conversation a, to people
2: it's an incredible conversation as are pretty much every conversation that phil and jf have so you know
0: definitely yeah, but dig like, in there if you haven't that's the one for me yeah. like that maybe out of like five or ten that i would that i would be like most inclined to recommend
3: mm. i think
0: this one really speaks to you know what else we've been saying even even early in this conversation where they you know they talk about the tower as the ego project right you know of like knowing who you are is basically just the reciprocal of knowing the world and being able to th- therefore control the world, you know? And, and so it's just about, uh, as, as, uh, William Irwin Thompson in his book, the American replacement of nature, which is one of my favorite reads of all time. He said, yeah. uh, you know, he's talking about the, the farmer versus the mystic. Mm. And he's like, you know the these these types of people like the the farmer can settle down you know the mystic tries to settle down but then god appears as the moving whirlwind like as soon as the mystic has erected their fences then a tornado comes to tear the fences down and this is how i know that i am i don't know i find solace in this uh because I've sought stability and and certainty in my life, time and time and time again, and still to this day, don't feel that I have truly learned the lesson that you know to the to the degree that I you know pin myself to a job or to some other kind of identity uh, or to you know a a source of stability in in my life then i am basically inviting disruption you know and and that the tower will come down sooner or later are you know generally speaking i think earlier you know most you know most of the people that are older people now live through a much more stable period in some respects i mean i have a lot more sympathy for for boomers than i used to uh as far as like realizing how few of them actually did benefit from that that uh profit as theft you know how many of them are stuck without a you know a retirement fund or whatever or you know getting evicted but you know i think in as much as modernity is sort of characterized by change that you know the world is used to the human world is used to, is is still sort of like riding on this notion that things are more or less unchanging or cyclical um, and and you know now we live in a world where things are characterized by again by the fact that they change at the aggregate level faster than we seem to be capable of changing as individuals. You know, this was SFI president David Krakauer's definition of modernity is that the culture learns faster than you do, mm-hmm. you know? And so how can you keep up in that kind of a space? Like, you know, all, like all of us are basically making unreliable investments all the time. And, god i don't want this to be where we end the conversation
2: <laughs> well there's one thing that we that we haven't spoken to in this particular iteration that i i'm curious to hear y'all's thoughts on um which is that there's that we we've talked in in this like at the macro scale about convalescence and breakdown and the potential necessity of that in a in a process and how that might actually be as painful as it will certainly be might actually also have benefit to many many beings but you know on the micro level um the thing that i keep thinking about is meditation practice stillness practice some kind of space where um i can decouple from the all of the noise it, now that's not to say that in a stillness practice there's not a lot of noise that's going to arise but i i like take myself out of the stream right of how it's happening quote out there and like drop into a space where you know there's the opportunity to observe and allow things to unwind and settle, you know, and I, and certainly that can happen within a practice session, but really looking at it as like, you know, a project of ecological restoration, regenerative agriculture, like, Mm -hmm. um, you know, mycelial networks expressing through the system in such a way that it it allows, uh, it allows for some respite, right, from mm-hmm. the pace of everything that's going on. And, you know, there's the possibility of engaging in a type of contemplative practice that's not about understanding or even about insight, but just about really allowing, right, things to be as they are without any need to engage with them in any way such that there's more space in my internal experience, which I think affords an opportunity for being slightly less reactive and slightly more nimble in navigating the unnavigable, right? And on the one hand, sometimes that gets framed as something that's like, you know, a privileged sort of orientation, but really, you know, it's something that is available to any of us, right? And can, we can start in the smallest possible way of like a minute seems too long, then take a breath, right? Mm -hmm. And extend that out into ways where potentially it, you know, as we build capacity and endurance, we can have it become a different kind of respite and refuge. Um, So I don't think that I'm saying anything that's new to either of you guys, but I feel like for me, this has always been an important inquiry, but I think it gets more important kind of like the crazier and wilder things seem to get the more like, you know, got to keep on keeping on and stick with it because it's, it is the hinge for me within my own life that allows me and affords me any real agency if if i have that at all right um so i mean i think that that i I don't necessarily think that that is like some kind of antidote and remedy and it's gonna like if everybody meditates and the world is going to miraculously you know transform into some kind of utopic paradise but i do think the more we can cultivate an intentional space of pause like uh, uh, intentional convalescence rather than having to wait for you know illness to just like mm-hmm. break whatever it is so that we have to take it enforced and we still very well may you know for all of us but i i do feel that um by folding that into daily life we're just developing the capacity to take space right yeah irrespective of whatever circumstances seem to be or happen to be
0: yeah so um although i i do have to acknowledge that this does actually peg directly into a a rather like esteemed historic discussion on the the privilege of leisure um Mm -hmm. you know and and that like basically the the act the academy was originally like you look at like scholarship and and the etymology of, of scholarship it's like attached to or uh, co-original with this idea of leisure you know that you have the time to think about stuff sure. and you look at like in the buddhist tradition the distinction made between uh, monks and householders you know so i do uh I do feel like in some respects, you know, the ship has sailed for me with (laughs) two kids, you know? Um, But at the same time, like I also agree with people like, like my buddy, Corey Allen, who's like, you know, mindfulness mindfulness is something that's available to you at all times. You know, it's, 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 it's not something it's kind of like farming in Brooklyn, you know, like it's possible,
3: Mm -hmm.
0: you know, you, you may have less space for it, than you did, but like any amount of farming in Brooklyn is better than none. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, So I, so yes, I agree with you, Taryn, that that's, that's a key piece of this. And uh, yeah. and, And I, I'll just add one more kind of angle to it, which is that it is through these considerations that I've, I've really come to appreciate. We're thinking about, technological unemployment in the wrong way i think generally as a society because there's this whole thing about and i've talked about this several times on complexity about how the bigger the anthill the fewer ants are working at any given time like the more Mm -hmm. the the more of them are taking a day off because otherwise the networks of the anthill get clogged like otherwise it's mm. too it's too productive and so it actually jams itself you know you 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 become incapable of actually transporting food into the colony um and we're we're there we're there as a society we're like we're making way more food than we can actually distribute you know we're we're producing way more content than than anyone actually has time for um you know, I send like my the emails I send to my subscribers. Now I like, here are the 25 podcasts I've been on in the last month. <laughs> and it's like, I'm like, I'm, you know, people write to me apologetic. Like, I am sorry. I can't keep up with you. And I'm like, I can't keep up with me, you right. know? And you probably can't even keep up with you. And like, I don't, you know, like we need, there's like a great forgiveness. I think that has to happen here. Mm-hmm. And, um, I, I'm sad to say that I don't think we're going to see, uh, corporate leadership leading the charge in this <laughs> no. regard i mean every once in a while you see that but um but basically i i uh i do think that eventually like by the end of the century we will have put something like a universal basic income into place because there will be no other way to incent people to back out you know like and we need people to back out we need people to not work you know so how are we how are we going to do that and suddenly all of the weird financialization of everything through crypto economics and like tokenizing every imaginable phenomenon suddenly doesn't seem quite as bad because like it doesn't seem like it's just sort of accelerating the train over the edge of the cliff. It seems like it may actually be like what will provide us with the ability to slow down, work less. Mm -hmm. So that, that is my, that is my, uh, the vision I, that I, I hold and that I want, other people to hold is that actually like some of the, the world's most esteemed economists that I like speaking to Brian Arthur um, on complexity podcast, we talked about that about he's, he's convinced he's like, yeah, we've, we've gotten to the point where growth is no longer the goal, you know, or it should no longer be the goal. Distribution of resources should be the goal. Yeah. And, and so you see this as like a, you know like the way that a cardiovascular system grows inside an an organism as an organism gets bigger if you're an amoeba you don't need a heart pumping blood you know if you're uh, if you're a brachiosaurus then maybe you actually need multiple you know multiple different sort of pump
2: stations valves
0: pump stations <laughs> right. all the way up the neck yeah You know, Mm -hmm. so, I mean, so like, you know, this obsession with scale has gotten us to a point where, okay, we actually need to start pumping wealth back Mm. into the rest of society. And, um, you know, if we don't take this on deliberately, then it will come, it will come with like torches and pitchforks. Right. And like, let's not. You know, <laughs> let's not do that. Let, let, if you're a billionaire somehow and you're listening to this still, I doubt it because your life is very fast and you've probably listened to this right. on reaction. Still gave up after ten minutes. Um, mm-hmm. But like, you know, I, was it Nick H- Hanaway? Who is it? the The, the billionaire that that re- that wrote this letter to to other billionaires, being like, "Oh, we, yeah. we need to start redistributing our wealth, or this is going to end badly." Mm. You know. Well, one Uh, of the
2: most famous lines, which maybe Lucas, you can quote in Chinese. I can't, but in English, this is like a classic Chinese, classical Chinese medicine aphorism, right? I'm pretty sure it's from the Suan, which is like, when things flow freely, there is no pain. When things don't flow freely, then pain arises, right? So obstructive patterns generate dysfunction, and or disease, and or you know create like decomposition in a way that is not necessarily immediately fruitful i mean like certainly when Mm -hmm. the whole thing decomposes great we're going to send it back to the earth but like you know things start to rot on site in a system that's supposed to be alive in a part of the system that's not supposed to be geared towards rotting and ripening and i think that that is um that scales Right. I'm, I'm not always interested in mm-hmm. whether or not things scale, but I think this particular aphorism scales in a lot of domains and in a lot of different aspects of what we've been talking about and um, what's going on in the world. Right. So what is it Jim Rutt likes to say about currency that if it like it, it needs to move mm-hmm. and his problem with um, Bitcoin, right, is that it just sits. Right. So from his point of view, and I'm not qualified to comment on this, I'm just kind of like riffing, right, that the fact that it sits makes it not useful because if it's not liquid, then essentially we're just creating more economic stagnation, which then tends to generate the same kinds of issues you're talking about, Michael, where it's like if we need to distribute it and it's sitting in one place, whatever it is, right, then that's the health of the system is in the patterns of motion rather than in, you know, a pile here and a pile there right that maybe maybe somebody spends a little bit of
0: right? totally so so uh it's nick hanauer by go. the way that who the that that billionaire and yes uh, i think jim Rudd is maybe not cribbing directly from art brock but mm. arthur brock of holochain and the oh, yeah. currency initiative you know I mean, he makes the same point he's like we're thinking about things wrongly insofar as we're thinking about value in terms of capital because that's uh, capital is something that just like hangs out and accumulates right you know and it's you know meta. that's why he emphasized meta currencies Mm -hmm. in terms of like value is in the fact that this thing flows right so yeah it is it is curious um you know that maybe the bitcoin thing is a whole other conversation totally but i will say that i will say that once upon a time when i was but a whelp i remember being on acid camping with my friends and realizing that money is blood And who wants a basement full of blood? Vampires. Totally. (laughs) Vampires (laughs) want a basement full of blood. You know? So, like, you know, we are... uh, That's... You know, there's something that's very true in the mythology of these sort of gerontocratic capitalist vampires that dominate our world. You know, like, I will give the conspiracy theorists that. Yeah. Like whether or not mm-hmm. anyone's actually drinking blood, they might as well be, Right? you know, that's mm-hmm. yeah, because, because, you know, the, the uh, ultimately the, the, the poetry, like we were talking about earlier with like art kind of being upstream mm-hmm. of science,
3: mm-hmm.
0: science is made out of metaphorical entailments. Like you cannot state something without it being, without it first appearing in a, a sort of neural network of associations. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so poetry is the fundament of, of fact of empirical fact. And, uh, and so, yeah, you know, we live in a, we live in a weird vampire world now. Like, how do we, how do we, can, can we recuperate these, you know, the vampiric processes of society or do we, or do we have to, you know,
2: We just need enough of the holy water of better stories to throw on the vampires, and then we'll fucking send them back to, you know, ashes to ashes and dust to dust.
0: I'm I'm very much about like pulling the drapes, sweet, like the sunlight exposing this exposing this like festering anaerobic crap to to the light. But of course, you got to be careful with that, right? For all the reasons we were just talking about, like cancellation and totally, you know, so Mm -hmm. on. I would prefer to I would prefer to heal. I'd prefer to get someone's tumor to like turn back into healthy cells rather than just like Mm. cut someone up trying to fix them, you know?
2: Totally agree. (laughs) Right. Right. So, Michael, we're coming up on a couple hours of your time. And while I would be perfectly happy to keep talking to you all day, I want to be respectful of the fact that you are a man who has a number of different things going on multiple jobs (laughs) um so is there as we land this plane and bring this sailboat into the the bay to put it to dock (laughs) are there any thoughts comments questions you want to leave us or people that might be listening with
0: i'll just be gross and and uh stick out my my cup for alms please do here you know i i think that um i you know I am at a point, and I, you know, Taryn. We, I think, this whole conversation is sort of predicated on that message I made to Future Fossils community yesterday that Michael Garfield does not scale. Yeah, and yeah. and um, you know, if, and
2: and nor should he. Just for the record.
0: Right. It ain't, it ain't right. Like we don't want this like Blade Runner 2049, like 50 foot hologram of Elvis, you know, living in like the (laughs) bombed out radioactive radioactive wastes of Las Vegas. It's like just, just, just these like larger than life echoes of what it meant to be human. Uh, Mm -hmm. And, and to the extent that I, uh, you know, that we have no choice in this world and that, you know, the, the, the personal brand makes the, the individual and institution fine. But uh, I do have a family to raise and therefore sanity to keep. And what that really means is that, you know, I would rather serve my sort of digital neighborhood than to try and be 15,000 things to 15,000 different responsibilities. And to that end, um, I am now not only really doubling down on serving the future fossils community and and recruiting people into the Patreon, you know support into subscribership for for the work that I'm doing, but also hanging a tile as an advisor and, and consultant. And so, you know, if this is the kind of conversation that you would like to have, uh, then I'm still at this point too easy to get a hold of. And, yeah. and I encourage that to the extent that you actually, you know, respect the fact that that it's uh you know, that all of this is is ultimately about sort of me redrawing the boundaries that enable me to serve you and everyone else in a better way. So Patreon.com slash Michael Garfield or Michael Garfield at gmail dot com uh or you know at Twitter or, and and, you know, just thanks thanks for giving me the opportunity to wax with the two of you together about all of this stuff today. And thank you for backfilling my, you know, cerebral rants with, you know, meditative calm and a sort of Eastern harmonic understanding of, the, you know, the this, the, the slippery and unquantifiable parts of this. Um, this is our fun pleasure. Yeah.
2: Absolutely. So you're, you're totally welcome. And, um, I want to take this opportunity to express my gratitude and appreciation to you, Michael, for this conversation, certainly, but also, um, There are a number of ways that your work and your thinking and your podcasting have been incredibly influential and inspirational for me because I linked up with the Santa Fe Institute a number of years ago when Melanie Mitchell did one of her first online offerings on like, you know, complexity explorers. And I think I made it through like a third of the course and it was just too computer program heavy for me, but it was. It was my first exposure to SFI, and I started tracking them, um, which was a great crash course in complexity science. Um, And then, you know, because of that, was on the mailing list to find out about Complexity Podcast when it first started and have tracked that since then. And that has just been incredibly educational on so many levels. Um, You know, the caliber of the guests, And the caliber of the conversation and getting the opportunity to um it feels like a collaboration even though this is the first time you and i have had a conversation i mean we've had a few email exchanges and facebook exchanges but there's such a uh level of depth and um multi-dimensional trans-contextual like mycelial uh You know, like from the zero point to the hyperspace interweaving of different modes and levels of thought um, and inquiry in your work as a conversationalist and a scholar on complexity. And then probably it wasn't until a year or two into complexity, if I've got my numbers right, that I understood that you had anything else out there. And then I came into contact with Future Fossils which i was like oh cool this guy's way fucking weirder than he lets on in the complexity pod no (laughs) wonder i've always like felt such a connection to where he was coming from i was Um, told
0: to bring the sober version of myself to that show
2: yeah well Uh i mean specifically (laughs) like like that's what it's great (laughs) to know both of those versions um but you know as somebody who has a A relatively deep bench in the non-sober psychedelic spaces himself i could smell it even though i couldn't quite point to it because i think it informs that sober thought uh with that zero point to hyperspace kind of like you know multi-pan-dimensional sort of orientation right um so i just am super appreciative i you know i never expected to be doing a podcast but in retrospect your work has been a huge influence uh in generating the space even though like it's not a linear progression or like we didn't decide to do it we were kind of asked and invited into doing this but i don't think at least for myself that we would be doing what we're doing in the way we're doing it without your work so i just want to offer my gratitude and appreciation for that thanks brother
0: thank you yeah that's cool